So when you look at things like men, uh, white men who are at the top of this system of dominance, right? They are, um, they hold essentially their position at the top of that pyramid is so is built on a completely straw house built on a sandy beach during hurricane season you're listening to don't repeat this the show where we talk about the stuff you're not supposed to bring up at the dinner table I'm Nate. I'm Gail. I'm Vicky. Um, and today we have a good friend of ours, Carrie Connolly, who is the author of the book, Good White Racist, Confronting Your Role in Racial Injustice. Um, Carrie also co-authored a response statement with Gail and me uh, to a local church's attempt at addressing racial inequity. Um, and we actually talked about that statement in our second episode of the podcast. So if you're interested in hearing our thoughts on um, what we perceive as the typical white evangelical response to racial inequity, um, go ahead and head back to that episode. Um, so first off, Carrie, I know it's been almost a year since your book came out, but I do want to say congratulations on its release. I feel Thank like you. because it came out during COVID, we're still sort of in that time period of, hey, your book just came out. <laughs> I know, it's crazy. <laughs> It's great. Like I never in a million years would have thought that it would come out during the height of a, a pandemic and the height of one of the worst instances of, of racial crisis that our country has seen in, in a really long time. So, yeah, yes, it's yeah. pretty crazy. Uh, I guess my first question for you would be, um, would you could you actually share a little bit about what prompted you to write this book? Uh, maybe share a little story of the journey that, that you were on uh, along the way. Yeah, so um, it's kind of a, I think any kind of journey to something like this is, there's, it was long, right? It didn't happen overnight. It was a, but, and there were miles, big milestones. But if I was going to point to a few milestones, I would have to say, I was blogging at, uh, on Patheos at Jer uh, Jersey Girl Jesus, which I don't really blog there too much anymore. But um, whenever I would write about racial stuff i was amazed at how especially like the white white christian dudes would just like the visceral angry response that i got from from white guys right and i was and for a blog that was titled jersey girl jesus anytime i would t talk about jesus there was not a whole lot of response but i talk about colin kaepernick and oh my god like the whole freaking thing just lit up my comment section lit up so being an eight on the enneagram i was like oh i need to poke that beast so i was like Let, let's do that some more um and then i got to seminary and um when I was in seminary, we were, uh, we had one class, our, our very first class, uh, there was, it's a pretty diverse seminary. The seminary is one of the only, actually, I think the only seminary that offers a PhD in African-American homiletics and rhetoric. And um, so it's a pretty diverse student body. And in our very first class, we dedicated four hours um, of class time uh, one afternoon to a conversation about, about race with a number of different people, all in different, at different of different racial identities and at different places of in the privilege of the the racial awakening as white people, those of us who need to go through that uh, that experience. And so um, that was an eye opening experience for me and a bonding moment for me. With um, I, I've always had uh, black friends, but that was a, a time in which I think my conversations with black people was brought to a, a deeper level. 
Um, and then I, in my second semester, we were uh, assigned to watch an episode of On Being with Ruby Sales. And for those of, of you who don't know who Ruby Sales is, she was uh, is a Black activist, public theologian, womanist. And she was, when she was 17 years old, she was at a civil rights rally and she was standing on the front porch of a general store and a white man approached her with a shotgun and pulled the trigger and a young white seminarian leaped in front of her and took the bullet for her. Um, and he died instantly, which of course changed the trajectory of Ruby Sales' life. And in that episode of, of, on, of On Being, she said, I get that we have a black liberating theology, but what I want to know is where is the white liberating theology? Where is the theology that liberates white people from hunger and addiction and, and poverty and all these things? And, and that's such a womanist thing to say, first of all, right? But also, I, I was so struck by the generosity of it, I couldn't get it out of my head. So I started thinking, well, what would a white liberating theology look like? And then the next semester, I actually had the opportunity to sit at Ruby Sales' feet, literally, very literally, and she held my hand in her lap and she stared into my eyes and she said, white supremacy is killing the souls of white people. She said, it is flattening and homogenizing you. It is stealing the legacy of your ancestries. White supremacy is soul murder. And that also stuck with me, that moment stuck with me. And it was because of those, those moments um, and being in a, uh, a school in which I was studying liberation theology and womanist theology and uh, some mujerista, but not a lot, um, that I was able to start recognizing that whiteness had suffered a failure of imagination, right? We had yet um, to be able to lean into an imagining of who and what we could be apart from uh, our, our con constructed identity of dominance. Um, and until we until we were willing to do that, we would never be able to actually heal um, the racial divide in our country, right? So I said, okay, I, I want to start doing this. I want to start working on a white theology. But then I realized I didn't know enough about whiteness. And that's what the book ended up actually being was, it was really my, uh, my first dive into trying to understand my own identity as a white person and where does it come from and how does it operate and play in the world? And that's really, that's really how it came to be. Thank you. That's quite the journey. Um, <laughs> I, I find it interesting that, uh, that this journey towards interrogating your own whiteness, if I could use that phrase, yeah. um, actually took place at a theological level. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I don't know, I think it's worth kind of mentioning that um, whiteness manifests very heavily and is very tied into the church in America. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And I think uh, you know, when you kind of look at, for example, um, the amount of the, the way that support for Donald Trump broke down this past election and in the election of 2016, with around 80% of white evangelicals supporting Donald Trump, that kind of support you don't see anywhere else. Mm -hmm. um, it, when you break down his support anywhere else in, um, uh, mm -hmm. in the vote. So as much as we want to, like as somebody who, who likes to sit in a sort of post-religious space as much as possible, mm -hmm. um, I find myself constantly being thrown back into it because these things that are so um, pervasive 
in society and so devastating to how society functions um, are deeply embedded in in the church and how how yeah functions. I, yeah totally I, I mean you know what even people who um, in America who identify as atheists are still impacted by the Judeo-Christian ethos, right? Um, and that's not to say that atheists can't be good people without God. That's that's bullshit. That's not what I'm saying, right? Like atheists can be awesome people and they can be assholes just like the rest of us, right? Um, so that's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is that that Judeo-Christian ethic or ethos has just been so kind of um, weaved into the fabric of our society for good and for bad, right? Like for, in all the best ways and all the worst ways, right? That you can't really accept, you are impacted by the Bible, whether you've ever read the book or not, right? You're, you're impacted by people's interpretation of that book, whether you've ever stepped foot in a church, right? And it's important to recognize that what you're impacted by are people's interpretation of that book, not necessarily by the book itself, right? Um, I think that's a, a really important distinction. But you're also right in, and correct in saying that, you know, whiteness is so embedded in the church um, because of the history of where whiteness, when whiteness was constructed and how the church used whiteness to, um, to uh decide who was closer to God and who was not, and the whole construct of language. It's all such a big mess, right? The construct of, of language and our purity, our, our ideas of purity and whiteness as being closer to God and all that crap. Like, there's there's just so much, um, and the way that the church of officially approved of um, the slaughter of the quote heathens um who were the indigenous populations who surprise happened to be black and brown you know and the slave i mean it's all it's all just a hot mess you know and it's all deeply embedded um and entwined and so you cannot separate it from the construct of whiteness i i had a thought on that i was actually reading uh this really bizarre you know we were mentioning trump we're mentioning the election we're mentioning christianity and all of the way those that you know, and white supremacy and how they intertwine together. And and especially your point about the Bible and how people don't have an interpretation, like it's, they don't get their messages necessarily from reading the Bible, it's people's interpretations of the Bible. And that just led me into thinking about how um, the main people we hear about the Bible from, uh, if you're white, <laughs> mm -hmm. is white men. Like that is your, yeah. that is your lens of interpreting scripture. And, and I think we've talked about it on maybe in a previous episode as well when we were dissecting evangelicalism and escaping that. But it makes me think of how when you're reading scripture, which is written by an oppressed group, by a group that was slaves, and then you're instead you're putting that lens and you're giving it over to a white man who's the most privileged in society. And now you're telling him, read the text and put yourself in there. And if he's not putting himself into the role of the oppressor, but he's pretending He's, he sees himself as the good character, the oppressed, you know, character who's having to fight against the oppression and, and he's reading himself into that. It sort of distorts reality and the way he's going to view things. And yeah. that is the biblical version we often get. So I was seeing this letter and it was written by a, a Christian school and they were denying COVID and they were like, I'm sorry to the valued clients. And they basically, it's in Virginia. Uh, they were saying that after decades of serving God and serving the community, effective immediately, the school uh, was closed for business. And and feel free to like write to the health department if you're not aware. The COVID pandemic has been a hoax to establish an antichrist kingdom on earth. And it's, it's a direct assault against the church and will be used to bring about a one world government. And this is the newsletter he put out to the school at, when it oh closed. God. And here's what he said. He goes, already we've been asked to forego almost every Christian right and duty. 
Christian fellowship, singing and preaching, visiting those who are sick and in the hospital, visiting those who are in prison, the laying on of hands in prayer and healing, communal celebrations like Easter, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and other sacred rites. And then, you know, he's tying this into COVID. And instead of admitting, you know, everything is being shut down because of COVID, no matter which church, which mosque, which, you know, temple, he's turning this into we're being persecuted for being Christians. And that's why we shouldn't take COVID seriously and why our school is being you know, shut down instead of we're not obeying regulations. But I thought like, it was just the most delusional newsletter I've ever read in terms of craziness. And everybody who, who was reading it and commenting were like, what the fuck? Like, what's going on? <laughs> I was just thinking, it's not as crazy. And it's not as insane when you start understanding the mentality behind imagining yourself as persecuted. Like the white Christian persecution complex is so strong. Yeah. And it comes, I think the reading, the reading a text meant where you're, you should see yourself in the oppressor group, but when you're the most privileged and when you're not doing that, you have to invent a different narrative. Yeah. And I think that ties, I don't, I don't know if you have any thoughts piggybacking. Yeah, I've got right? so many thoughts. I'm trying to decide which one I should go first because my brain goes faster than my mouth. Um, so my first thought is that um, the, the, first of all, the, the, pro the big problem with everything that is in that guy's letter is the fact that the, the, the most core Christian ethic is about giving up all of your rights. It's about dying to self. It's about, the, you know, it's about going to the cross, right? so so he's he's it's, everything that he said is just bullshit there's no such thing as a sacred right in christianity because christianity is about giving giving yourself away right um so so i call bullshit there and then the second thing that i want to say well and then okay so then my journey through this um co the construct of whiteness has also kind of led me to really be fascinated with the with the idea of the construct of dominance in general like any dominant identity systems of dominance and then the ways that identities of dominance play and in within their their roles within the system right so when you look at things like men uh white men who are at the top of this system of dominance right they are um they whole essentially their position at the top of that pyramid is so is built on a completely straw house built on a sandy beach during hurricane season right like it's not there's nothing real about it and so that's why i think there is so much defensiveness right there's so much oh my gosh i'm gonna be you're somebody's persecuting me because they know that they have they don't have a leg to stand on as far as deep down and i'm not saying consciously i'm saying like deep down there in somewhere deep in their soul and their psyche they go i am no better or no worse than anybody else right like they know this deep down and so they they there's a psychic struggle i think within the soul the dominant soul and i think that there is a disfigurement to, to souls of dominance um that we i really want to explore i'm hoping to do phd work in that actually so so i think that that's that's something i feel um i am actually heartbroken for white white men um because you know for those of us um who identify as female many of us uh, as white females particularly many of us can um at the very least we we understand what a microaggression is right we understand um the energy that it takes and i was thinking about 
you know, a time I, I came up to uh, to talk with you, Nate, for Booth Theology, and I got into an Uber driver with, surprise, a driver who goes to Emergence Church, which is that church. That, <laughs> and he, you know, found out where I was going, and he just started talk, tell, mansplaining the Bible to me and then telling me all about how women don't get to preach and teach. And I had to make the decision that in that moment, as a woman alone in a car with a guy who was driving, do I feel like addressing his ignorance or do I just stay quiet, right? What's the safer thing for me to do? What's the least exhausting thing for me to do, right? So like we get microaggressions, white men don't have any context. So they don't understand what what they truly don't understand unless they're poor and i'm talking really poor right they don't have any any context for oppression and so they they have to do the work of imagining um more than any of us um and and that's uh, i'm not giving them a pass i'm still expecting them to do it but i'm saying that i uh, my heart breaks because um they are so dissociated from their own uh the fullness of the human experience um because they have not been able to experience that kind of oppression for themselves. And then third, the third thing that I, I thought about when you were talking about is that evangelicalism is the, the, the core ethos of evangelicalism is fear. And you can trace that all the way back to the Puritans, right? All the way back to, um, the, the, and, and actually I, I have to do, I have to give Scott Dr. Scott C. his his due because he would ask me to make the differentiation between the fact that much of what we talk about as as evangelical is actually fundamentalism, right? That evangel and and so he really wants us to understand that everything that we're talking about that we're pointing to and saying calling it evangelical that you know, uh, voted in Trump and all these things, they're actually fundamentalists in evangelical clothing, right? Calling themselves evangelical. Yeah. Do, could I, could I interject real quickly? Cause yeah. I come, my, my upbringing is in fundamentalism. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and one of the, so some of that distinction might be lost on some people. Um, the, so fundamentalism actually was the first in this wave of 20th century movements. And then what became eventually known as evangelicalism, which back back at the time it formed in the 20th century, it was neo-evangelicalism, was a response to fundamentalism's kind of closing itself off from larger society. Mm -hmm. the, the operative principle for the neo-evangelicals was that um, the fundamentalists weren't going to shape society, um, and the fundamentalists didn't want to. So th they, they wanted to create a remnant. So that's probably the only thing that's different between fundamentalism and evangelicalism, if we're going to create a distinction. Not according to Dr. Scott say. Oh, no, okay. <laughs> yeah, so, so like what what Scott would say, and, and I'm going to tell him he has to listen to this now so he can critique me because I'm sure he will. Cool. But, um, but what Scott would say is that evangelicalism and the way he describes evangelicalism is beautiful and i'd be totally down with it because it would allow me to actually exercise my faith the way it's it's manifesting now um and because what e true evangelicalism is it's where the spirit blows right so who are we to, to decide for the holy spirit what she's going to do right and and that's the true evangelicalism where and fundamentalism is actually um born back in the puritans they were a, a group of people who came over here and they were so afraid of doing something wrong according to their god that they became this this 
you know, ridiculously isolated group of people who, who said, you know, you're not going to, you can't do all of these things. Right. And they isolated themselves. And that has that fear of, of pissing God off and, and being somehow persecuted by your government has carried through, through straight through to the, the election of Donald Trump. Right. Right. Um, Sorry. And I think, I think what I, what I was uh, getting at, because it sounds to me, maybe I'm perceiving a bit of a semantic sort of, or, or a definition, a, a different definition. So I'm, I'm thinking of evangelicalism as the, the perceived movement right now, as opposed to evangelicalism as evangelicals would like to see themselves, perhaps, or we would like to, we would have liked to have seen ourselves. Yeah, I, I mean... Again, like I, I'll be honest. What I practiced was fundamentalism, but I called it evangelicalism, mm -hmm. right? Right. Probably what I practice now is much more, according to what Scott, how Scott would de define um, evangelicalism, is much more along the lines of where where is the spirit going to lead me? Right. Mm -hmm. It's it's this idea that I, that I don't need a mediator. I have this direct connection, and I can go um, and and follow where where the holy spirit leads me so so anyway but the, but that's that's the, the point is is that yeah that this fundamental slash evangelical ethos is fear and it's fear of the other yeah. and for because it was started with a group of wasps white anglo-saxon protestants the other the the scariest other was anybody who wasn't a wasp wasn't a white anglo-saxon protestant so the darker your skin was the harder it was for you to assimilate into this white construct right um and so and it's all about fear so those are the three things so when Gail, when you're talking about um, you know, his newsletter is all about, oh my gosh, there's going to, we're going to, it's, it's this new world order. It's the same ethos of fear that is, um, that somehow, now this is really interesting to me because scripture, one of the most, the most common phrases in scripture is fear not, fear not, fear not, right? So for people, a group of people who say that they place the Bible as their primary authority and the number one thing that the Bible says is fear not, they're very afraid of a lot mm. of things. I want to piggyback off of something that you had said earlier um, with regards to microaggressions and the work. Like you were talking, you were talking about your uh, uh, your Uber ride uh, to, to to the pub. Like having to weigh out like the um, the need to correct him versus um, your own personal safety and and security and well being. Um, and that reminded me of uh, of an essay that another friend of mine wrote. Who is um, it, he's in the musical theater industry um, in New York City, and he he told several stories of various auditions um, that he was in auditions that were involving stories that we would hope as as maybe you know a more liberal audience would help us to clue into some of the racial inequity that's going on but are so horrendous when you look at what's been going on so he talked about uh, how he was auditioning in a new musical um, and the introductory line had him referring to himself as being quote unquote handed over in chains which was and he's a black man he's that's black important man, which was then accompanied by the stage direction in the script bowing his head good-naturedly of course 
The implication. I mean, you're you're the look on your face is saying what, it all. What what show is this? <laughs> I, I don't know. He didn't mention the show, and it's probably for you know for good reason. Um, but the the I mean, the already the implications of this you know imagery is all is is already problematic. But then he goes on to say the optics grow even more grim when that actor playing that role is the only black man in the ensemble. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he then he talked about another uh, instance where he got called for a musical about Emmett Till. Who's thinking a musical about Emmett Till? Can we not do yeah, that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah well, it, it, and the musical oh. is made by white white people. Well, Shocker. Yeah. Yeah. No, the so whole thing. The Just... entire creative team, with the exception of the director, were white people. Could we just say Emmett Till, for those who don't know, is it was um, was a boy who was accused of flirting, a 14-year-old accused of flirting with a, right, a white person, and then that basically, he was, he was... He was lynched in Mississippi. Yeah, yeah. that's... Murdered. And then uh, she, the woman took it back. Yeah, yeah, she took it. He was a 14-year-old kid. Sorry, I'm going to get on that for a little. Who the fuck looks at a 14-year-old kid and thinks that they're... That, there's any kind of threat. Well, white people who have bought into the savage construct of yeah, that's black true. bodies. It's true. That's like true. getting getting back, Nate. So yeah. I mean, so the white people are making <laughs> right. are making a production about so, this. So the, the, the story gets even crazier. My friend goes on to to write that they were using colorblind casting. So they were just casting people irrespective of their of their racial or ethnic identity for various roles. The role that he was expected to read for was Roy Bryant, the guy who murdered Emmett Till for allegedly whistling at his wife. To expect a black man to play the role of the guy who murdered, the white supremacist who murdered a little black boy. Yeah. Yeah. So, and the amount of white people who are so ignorant, including his agent, like the amount of yeah. just overlooking any thought behind yeah. any of that. So yeah, that anybody right. would even send would. E <sighs> okay, so yes, to. So, so what he goes on? Sorry, I just want to want to what he how he kind of wrapped this this up was sort of like a question about and and a and a critique about the. Um, he, he entitled his essay Black Due Diligence. And what he's kind of gone on to, to explain is that, if I, let, me just, let me just read it because I, I don't want to butcher what he's saying, but he, he says, these are just a handful of my experiences within the industry that have forced me to expend my time, energy, and dignity, making sure due diligence is performed for everyone else's jobs in order to reduce the risk of finding myself in a compromising or potentially traumatizing situation. The gag is that working to prevent such trauma is traumatizing in and of itself. And this is all before I even have stepped into an audition room or a rehearsal. It's an institutional breakdown that I can't even really call a breakdown since that shit has always been broken. It's always been the job of black people to patch it up. And he goes on to kind of talk about that the 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 balance that 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 black people have to have to weigh out mm -hmm. like then then he ha then he thinks about okay if i don't say anything about this now who later on down the line is going to be cast in this role if i don't say anything right that 
but why do I have to say something? I'm tired of this shit. Right. You know? Right. And this is exactly why I wrote I wrote the book, right, is to invite white people into this labor, you know, because it's, it is our labor, it is our um, responsibility, and it is our work, right? Um, because, first of all, <laughs> if white people were doing their work, um, they would know that, uh, first and foremost, that Emmett Till's story is not ours to tell, right? We don't, we don't get to, um, we don't get to uh, define that narrative at all um, that we would allow um, it like so if I'm if I'm a producer if I'm a white producer and I say hey you know what I think that there's a way to tell Emmett's story um, in a way that maybe can can educate white people then fine I bankroll that and then I hire every single fill every single slot with a black person in the production right so so that they are and give them all decision making and my job is to bankroll it right like that's it um but even that is problematic because white people should not be getting to profit off of emmett till's story ever sorry that's just gonna yeah. make me really pissed oh. off like no no you get to donate all that money if you are going to make any money off of emmett till's story white people don't get to make money off of that yeah. Number okay, and then the idea that um, a a black man would that it would be a good idea to be quote colorblind. I mean that what what that, that's such a perfect example of how the the construct of colorblind does harm to to black and brown bodies, right? Um, even among good, well-intentioned white people who are saying, oh, I'm colorblind, I don't see color, right? Well, th this is a perfect example why it's important to see color because it's important to see color so that you don't fuck over the black people in your life, right? By sending them to, um, to, to read for a role of a person, a white person who lynched a 14-year-old black boy. Like that... Can I just jump in with colorblindness? Please. There was there's a beautiful image that I, a good a good graphic that I saw going around that was saying what the dangers were of the colorblindness mentality, and it sort of just did bullet point really easy stuff. And I thought it was helpful. It was like uh, you can't fix something you can't see. So if you're colorblind, you can't fix it. You can you don't even, if you don't see it. Um, it allows you to ignore the complexities of racial issues. Um, you're not actively dismantling your own prejudices when you're claiming to be colorblind. It minimizes the struggles of people of color in today's society, and it limits uh, your ability to appreciate individualism. Yeah, those were some of the bullet points in just that idea that I was yeah. like, and not only everything that you just said. You know, I I am. I am blessed and lucky to count um, black. Some some of my closest friends are, are black, and um, their blackness is one of the most beautiful things about them, right? And for me to to decide to ignore that or to um, to to try to pretend I don't see it, first of all, it's crap because of course I see it, you know. And they know they're black too, shocker. But it's like. For, for me to try to ignore a core aspect of who they are and what makes them part of what makes them such beautiful people, right? And people that I love, it's, it, I'm, I would lose out, right? Like there's so much for, um, for white people to learn from um, blackness and from the BIPOC community in general. I was listening 
to a podcast um, and it was, there was two white women that were talking and they were like, yeah, we, and they were very well, again, they meant well. And they were like, yeah, we need to, white people need to do everything we can to help black people. And I was like, uh, no, I'm like, this is, this is not, that's just more white saviorism. What we, the paradigm shift, the paradigm shift, paradigm shift that I am encouraging people and inviting people into is to under white people into is to understand that we have healing to do within ourselves. We have a disfigurement in our souls that can be healed. Um, and that can be taught by, um, the black community, by the BIPOC community that, that we are in a position to be healed and made whole, um, by what, what we are willing to learn from them, you know, um, yeah, I'll stop. I'm rambling now. That is a fantastic point, by the way. Like, <laughs> I was just like, wow, what a shift in thinking from I'm going to come in to help Black people to show that I care about Black people and I care about, like, um, oh, there was something else from your book, Carrie, and I'm, I'm rabbit trailing. But the shift from I need to heal myself instead of I need to come in and help save you and the saviorism. Uh, there was something Nate was reading to me from your book um, about... Um, talking about missions and talking mm. about uh, the shift in looking at mission work. And I've, I've brought youth groups down to Jamaica. I've gone to Haiti and, and on missions trips. And I feel very, I actually just last week took uh, pictures I had off my wall related to missions and I have some shame. I have, mm. and, and I went in learning and understanding the, those attitudes existed and just starting to get into how missions work, sometimes damaging to local communities and what it can do that's harmful. Um, I didn't have a full understanding of it. I'm still learning, but that need for white people to see themselves as saving black people is so gross and so damaging. And to see ourselves as the ones who need saving and help is a very big shift. Um, I even think of in churches that I went to and grew up in, there was a big, big i don't know if you're gonna know what i'm talking about you probably will but operation christmas child which was sending oh. shoe boxes to third world countries but the posters the optics they're all like white people helping these poor black children actually yeah. a lot of organizations helping are mm -hmm. really making white people feel like look at me i am sitting in the seat of privilege and power and i'm going to do something nice to help you poor black people in your poverty and and maybe the attitude is i want to be generous i want to teach my kids generosity i want but there's another message behind there as yeah. well. Yeah. Yes. What you're tapping into is this this really messed up power dynamic where we maintain the status quo of power and then do band-aid stuff by feeding hungry bellies to make us feel good about it and then continue to maintain the status. We don't do anything to disrupt the systems that cause hungry bellies or, you know, Im impoverished nations or, you know, um, whatever the, the, whatever the issues are is systemic racialized poverty. We don't do anything to disrupt those systems. Um, and so therefore we can continue to check our connection card on Sunday to say, we're going to go down to Penn station and hand out bagged lunches. And then we can feel really good about ourselves because we helped the poor black homeless people, but we're not doing anything to disrupt the system that actually makes them homeless and makes them hungry. Right. And so it's this self-perpetuating system of I'm going to maintain my power, my safety, my comfort, and I'm going to f get to feel good while I do it because, oh, look, aren't I such a nice person, right? And so the, the person that is really willing to take a good, hard look at themselves um, 
regarding that is, is somebody who's going to be willing to see their own complicity in that system and then ask themselves how they, how they can actively disrupt that system. Vicki, you look like you were going to say something. I was, I, I mean, it's, it's, gone now but i was just thinking like isn't handing handing out lunches or handing out um gifts with operation christmas child isn't that inherently racist based off of like what carrie was saying because it implies that the people giving the gifts are in like this position of power that's above the position of like it just completely ignores the culture and the community and everything that's going on in those countries. And it's like, let's take our American version of what is good and right and, and what you should do on December 25th. And I'll just give it to you. And now you have to do it. And like, what are they like? Do they even, I, I don't really understand operation Christmas child that much because I'm not, I was not born in that community. I didn't go to church. Um, like, like all of you went to church. And so we did, we just didn't have it, but we had s similar stuff. And so I just like, that to just ship toys off randomly is confusing to me. <laughs> From what I hear, most of the kids who open the shoeboxes are confused too. <laughs> like I've, I've heard that. Okay. Um, okay. But, but here's the thing, and this is where it gets messy and paradoxical and where we have to be willing to hold context and, and paradox is that it's still important to feed hungry bellies, right? I'm not going to sit there and say, I'm sorry, I'm not going to feed you because I'm busier disrupting the system that's making you hungry, right? Jesus would be like, what the fuck are you doing, right? Feed the belly. That's, that's what Jesus would say. But Jesus would also call out the powers at play that are causing the hungry belly, right? And so I really do believe that that's what I'm, we're called to do. I'm not saying that churches who go and to Penn Station and feed hungry people are evil. But what I am saying is that that's not where the work ends. That's only the beginning. And it's the superficial work that we need to be doing. The, the more important work is the disruptive work. And that's sort of the more complicated work and the Absolutely. harder and the one that makes us feel a little bit better about ourselves because yeah, we, we it's might. messy. Yeah. I saw, uh, speaking of just the colorblindness and the way that we, um, uh, sometimes are unaware of of how we look at things, uh, even in terms of yeah. There was I'm just going to read this. Anytime someone says we've never been more divided as a country that was legally segregated within many of its current <laughs> citizens' lifetimes, I guess at least they're making it clear who the we is. Mm. Um, and I was thinking of how even how we look at everyone around us, we don't see our whiteness. We don't even recognize when we start saying certain statements out loud how much we ignore other people and the structures around us that exist. Like we by default see the world as just us white mm -hmm. people and mm -hmm. and that sort of white colored blindness leads us to saying some really dumb things mm -hmm. but also that show that white and i like how you you phrase it carrie white pseudo supremacy because it's not real authentic supremacy but mm -hmm. i someone else responded with just so we're clear her name was brie uh newsom bass just so we're clear conservatives that argue that America was more united when we were literally segregated and things that are things are more divisive whenever black people assert our citizenship and or our humanity just so we're clear that's white supremacy mm -hmm. and yeah just it was the whole thing was just thought-provoking of all that talk about unity or being divided as a country that to totally takes out of context all of the uh, what you were talking about earlier about how we need healing white people's a lack of recognition on damages that have been done that we have caused or that have been a part of our heritage and not like thanksgiving is you know how people um people have complicated or that are trying to start to think about 
our heritage mm-hmm. or having a hard time thinking through yeah. like yeah. yeah and i mean by by its design whiteness is is constructed to be invisible to white people that's how it maintains its power right it's we don't see it and and that's why we don't talk about it and that's why that's why colorblindness feels so good to white white people because if i don't have to talk about your blackness then i don't have to talk about my whiteness right and and that's really the thing that we're really trying to avoid is because because once i talk about my whiteness then i have to talk about everything that goes with it and all of the complicity, right? And so, um, and I have to start interrogating it. I have to start asking it questions. I have to start um, saying, well, wait, am I, have we really ever been united? I have to start really um, kind of paying attention to uh, how does whiteness play out in my day-to-day life and in my interactions and in my voting power and in my economics and um, how does my whiteness um, impact uh, you know, like a, a perfect, a perfect example. And, and again, it is messy and complicated as, as white women, we hold a very specific, um, liminal space, right? Where we can, on the one hand, understand what a microaggression feels like, and we can understand. And when I say microaggressions, I, I, sometimes I want people to understand, what that how painful a microaggression is okay because a microaggression is not just a little slight it's not a microaggression is an actual being in an actual situation in which you could be harmed economically physically emotionally um you know it's it's a matter of having to decide whether you're going to speak up on the job when you're experiencing harassment and you might lose your job, like you might actually use your lose your financial security. So you're forced to accept this behavior and this harassment every day. I'm talking about actual hands on my body that were there uninvited, right? In a mall or at my workplace, both of things, those things have happened to me, right? So like, this is the kind of stuff that um, it's real stuff. It's real harmful stuff, right? Yeah, I just wanted to share um, with respect to microaggressions, uh, a personal story. So um, in the early days of the pandemic, um, probably uh, right around the time that that we were locking down here in New Jersey um, in March-ish, I think it was, I was uh, waiting in line outside of a grocery store and um, the... Um, the white guy in front of me, I don't know what what his intention was. I think he was trying to be funny or trying to crack a joke about, or, or maybe just simply trying to make conversation, um, said, oh, you know, it must suck knowing that your people brought this thing over here. Um, what? And Oh my God. Um, that, so... So the reason that... So, so when people say the word microaggression, it's to to the person aggressing it's micro but to the recipient there are massive decisions that i have to make um do i respond to this person how do i respond to this person do i laugh it off and allow Mm -hmm. this this mentality to continue do i address it and run the risk of ending up like look i know the stories i know about the the chinese women who were stabbed um i know about the um the Asian, the the Asian girl, I think, who was burned, thrown a, a brick thrown at her, and people are yelling, like calling them coronavirus. 
I'm not even Chinese American. I'm Japanese American, but it's hard for people to tell the difference. And to everyone else, I look like them. So it's so I guess the, the point I'm trying to make is to piggyback off of what you're saying. These micro aggressions are anything but micro right. to the people well, who are you you, you who gave are me receiving. a yeah, you, you gave me a thought, too, on an example. I, I was thinking about when guys um, ask you for your number in a bar, that kind of a situation. Uh, there was, And that's not anyone has, nobody's harassed you. Nobody has stuck their hand on you. Nobody has touched you. But, like, that fear, I've had to leave party, work Christmas parties where no one has touched me, but where a guy just kept trying to physically get in my space, where I felt unsafe, and I've had to have other guys walk me to my car because I didn't feel safe. And the reality is, like, if a guy asked me for my number so the it was a comment that kind of flew out there to men like how many guys would be willing to get me to give me their number to give this guy to prank you know so when he asked for my number you could say something as a dude to him on the phone like oh she died or 15 years ago or like you know turn it into a prank and then someone commented well what if that guy on the spot decided to call that number wouldn't that be a bad idea and i said my response to that was isn't it sad that the best option could still be dangerous like giving him your number it would be a worse plan because at least if he didn't have your number and he had this other dude's number there's a chance you can get away before he calls um it obviously saying no to him if he doesn't know how to take no i mean if you give someone else's number and he doesn't call on the spot you have a chance of getting out of that scenario before like that thought of sometimes the best option in a microaggressive scenario is still going to put your life in jeopardy and you haven't right. been touched you haven't been harassed but you right. have to make a decision on the spot what is the least of all options that can keep me safe in this moment i think that the um the, the paradigm of microaggressions is actually the contrast is that it's not a, it's it's something that happens interpersonally and it's not systemic right it's 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 talking about the way the ways in which racism and sexism and misogyny and anti-LGBTQ homophobia, all those things occur on the on the micro level as opposed to the systemic. Right. Yes. Um, exactly. But th but there was a question there was I really want to get get what I was trying to get at. And then I forgot. And it was something based on something you said, Gail. Um, but but yes, the point absolutely is, is that microaggressions are exhausting to the people who have to deal with them every single day. And it is absolutely a matter of life and death for people. Yeah. So there's so much more that we could talk about. Um, and we we might, uh, Carrie, if you want to come back on the show, the invitation is open. Sure. Um, so to. you're more than welcome to, to rejoin us and talk about some more stuff, because I know there are questions that are burning in my mind. I'm sure there are questions and thoughts burning in everybody else's mind, Gail's and Vicky's and our listeners. Um, but I want to uh, give you a little bit of space to also talk maybe for a couple of minutes about some projects that maybe you're currently working on, things that are on your radar at the moment, anything that's yeah, so it's a little bit of a sidetrack, and this is the first time I'll be saying it out loud to anybody. Um, Ooh, an exclusive. I know, it is an exclusive. It's kind of a, and it's it's still a little scary and weird for me, but, um, you know, part of going to seminary is one of the, the beautiful things that happens at sem seminary is your faith kind of gets smashed to bits and then rebuilt, right? If it's a good seminary, right? Um, and so that definitely happened to me. And in that process, I really discovered a lot of, uh, a lot of new stuff around my own, not new. What I discovered was um, that there was a lot of crap built into my theology 
that I wanted, I didn't want there anymore. And then when I did that, that created a whole bunch of space for new things um, or not new things, but uh, the actual experience of the divine that I've had my entire life to come in. Um, and those are things that would be considered uh, quote witchy or, um, you know, not evil, demonic, whatever, um, knowing things, intuition, things like that, right? Um, so I'm really excited because I'm going to start, or I've actually already started, but I will be releasing in January a new podcast called Badass Angels. And I'm really, really excited because Adrian Marie Brown has agreed to be on that podcast, which is like, I'm just amazed and terrified to interview her and I can't wait to do it at the same time. Um, she's the author of Pleasure Activism and uh, Emergent Strategy. And, um, and basically what that's going to be about is a lot of, it's, it's going to talk about the merging of um, sort of women, the feminine divine, and helping people step into their own power as being able to connect with the divine and um, outside, of, outside of religious dogma, you know, and decolonizing that while at the same time, making sure that as white people, we're not practicing spiritual bypassing and we are not practicing spiritual appropriation of other cultures, uh, spiritual practices. So that's something that I'm really interested in. And I'm still really, really interested in systems of dominance. Um, what, what does that look like? How does that play out? How do we subvert that? So that's the work that I'm going to be doing in my future. Awesome. Um, so I'll, I'll put, I'll put your info in the show notes, but, um, just so if anybody is listening to this while they're driving, don't, don't go scrolling through your show notes. <laughs> so instead, um, Carrie, if you could just tell us where can people find you online, uh, your website info. Social yeah. Media. The best place to find me is on carryconnolly.com. Um, that's pretty much where you can get everything. And Instagram is carry.connolly. So that's probably the, a good place to follow me as well. Awesome. Um, so real quick before we sign off, I do want to make a quick comment. Gail, you had read a tweet earlier, um, and and the tweet uh, text of the tweet was: "Anytime anyone says we've never been more divided about a country that was legally segregated within many of its current citizens' lifetimes, I guess at least we're making it clear who there we is." That tweet was posted by Daniel, uh, sorry, Daniel Danielle Valore Evans. Um, who is an author and uh, wrote the book Before You Suffocate Your Own Fool Self. I just wanted to make sure that we got the credit out there. Um, Thank you, Nate. To ensure that we're not like uh, plagiarizing or appropriating people's, uh, people's words. So um, anyway, that's all I have. Um, I think we could go ahead and wrap up the episode. Um, thank you so much for listening. Um, if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. Um, and if you don't have a podcast app yet, just head to don'treatpeatthispodcast.com and you'll find a list of all of the apps that we're available on. Um, so share this episode with your friends, your family, rate and review us on iTunes. As Vicky loves to say, five-star reviews do get extra credit. It's true. It's really true. <laughs> And follow us on social media. We're at Don't Repeat This Podcast on Facebook and Instagram and at Don't Repeat Pod on Twitter. Uh, on behalf of my co-hosts, Gail and Vicky, I'm Nate, and this has been Don't Repeat This. So while it may or may not be a good idea to repeat this stuff at the dinner table, let's all work together to not repeat these historically bad decisions. Bye, everyone.